Bodie believes the 50-year storm is coming next year. 50-year storm? What's that? That's kind of a legend. No, it's real. It's absolutely real. Everything moves in cycles. So twice a century, the ocean lets us know just how small we really are. A winter storm comes out of Antarctica, tearing up the Pacific. And it sends a huge swell north 2,000 miles. And when it hits Bell's Beach, it'll turn into the biggest surf this planet has ever seen, and I will be there. So An FBI agent goes undercover as a surfer to catch a group of bank robbers. Special guest Adam Pincus returns to the show to discuss robberies at an old folks' home, a very uncomfortable fetish, and the scariest part of skydiving. Then we find out if Point Break stands the test of time. Time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood. Alan says as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and I am joined by not one, but two people here today. Who are you there across from me? What's your name? Uh, I'm the guy you've done uh, 250 whatever so podcast with. You know, take a wild guess. What's my name? Oh, well, it's uh, 262, and uh, your name is James Brief. And joining us for the sixth time is Adam Pincus. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Wow, what a round of applause. Thank you. I didn't even clap. I was just too busy talking. James really loud. Why don't you clap, Al? Okay. Okay, now it should thank sound you, thank better. Thank you, thank you. Once James and I started recording in person again, it occurred to us that we could have guests on the show as long as they're vaccinated. And, you know, you showed us your vaccine card. Uh, we called your physician. We yes. verified all of the information. Uh, we ran it through the database. and We had- also got titers on him to check his antibody levels. Oh, you did? Is that what you guys were doing before? I get blood tests from everyone before I allow them to come over. Well, that's smart. Um, so then I happened to look on my little Google Doc of movies with anniversaries, and I saw that Point Break is celebrating its 30th anniversary, and I know that you love Patrick Swayze in general, but also specifically this movie. I do. Um, this movie hits the sweet spot of a lot of things I enjoy about movies, and also just the time period. I feel like it was like on Sunday afternoons, Saturday evenings, or whatever run on Showtime or HBO, so they've seen it 800 million times. But yeah, it's also, as I think I've spent a few hours on this podcast in the past, uh, explaining my love of Patrick Swayze, and uh, his little mini run from like the mid-80s to, unfortunately, sort of ends with about this movie of just his uh, utter dominance over the Hollywood box office. But I love Swayze. He's a great movie star. And um, you kind of forget the Keanu really isn't that great in it. But Swayze more <laughs> than makes up for it and teaches Keanu how to be the future Keanu that he will be. James, why don't you just uh, remind our listeners what Point Break is all about? Point Break, we should point out, this is the 1991 version that we're uh, reviewing today, not the 2015 remake. Mm -hmm. This is about Johnny Utah, played by Keanu Reeves. He's an FBI agent investigating a series of bank robberies in Southern California. And Utah goes undercover as a surfer once they figure out these robbers are most likely surfers. And he winds up befriending a group of thrill seekers led by the mysterious Bodie, played by Patrick Swayze. Utah falls in love with another surfer named Tyler and discovers that Bodie is the leader of the bank robbers. Then Utah must choose between getting his perp and saving his girl and maybe getting a thrill or two in the middle. I hope so. I mean, you said that they were thrill seekers, so I hope that they seek thrills and successfully seek those thrills. Oh, they do. And they spent $24 million seeking these thrills and putting them 
on film in 1991 by director Catherine Bigelow. Uh, she famously was the uh, first female director awarded a Best Director Oscar for The Hurt Locker. And she also followed that up uh, very successfully with uh, Zero Dark Thirty. When Catherine Bigelow started popping up as a Oscar-level director, oh, by the way, 15 years ago, she directed Point Break. I was like, what? Yeah, and, you know, this is actually at the time that she is married to another famous director, uh, director James Cameron. They were married from 89 to 1991. I don't know if you noticed, but in the credits, I didn't know that until I watched this time, uh, he seemed to have produced this film. Yeah, and apparently he also co-wrote the screenplay. He's not credited as a writer, but the story goes that he and Catherine Bigelow, like, did a pretty substantial rewrite on the original script. Where did she fit after, um, who's the actress that James Cameron was married to from Terminator? Linda Hamilton. So was she after Linda Hamilton? Uh, hold on. I'm um, curious. Oh, James Cameron's had a lot of wives. Um, <laughs> I'm just, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, he has been married five times. He was married to Sharon Williams from 78 to 84. Then he married Gail Ann Hurd. They divorced in 89. Then he met and married Catherine Bigelow in 1989. They divorced in 1991. Then he started a relationship with Linda Hamilton. They were married in 1997. They separated after two years of marriage. And then he married Susie Amos, his fifth wife, in the year 2000. And I guess they're still together? So that's, uh, that's a good run if they're, you know, yeah, good for him. 21 years and counting. But uh, on wife number five, he, he got it. So, okay. Good on him. All right, so you said the budget of the movie, James, but how much money did it make? Was it a profitable investment? The film was made for $24 million, as I said, and it opened on July 12, 1991. It opened at number four with $8.5 million. Uh, number one, that film. This is July of 1991. It's certainly on many uh, lists of the best sequels of all time, released in summer of 1991. Oh, boys. Die it, Hard. You're in the right genre, and the right genre of leading man actor, but the wrong co-founder of Planet Hollywood. Oh, wow. So, uh, Stallone? You're, uh, Schwarzenegger. You there you go. So, Schwarzenegger. A sequel. Wait, Terminator 2? That's right. Well, actually, uh, Al, would you like to correct him? I believe the full title is Terminator 2, colon, Judgment Day. Um... It feels unlikely that we'll look back at, like, the summer of 22 and be like, oh, wow, there was four amazing movies that were all released in, like, a two-week span. But, like, it seems like at back of then, it's like, they used to come out in chunks. Oh, yeah. So this film, as I said, $24 million budget, opened at number four with $8.5 million, wound up grossing $43 million domestically, $85 million worldwide. And I found this to be interesting. U.S. rentals for the film grossed $20 million, and worldwide was much higher. That makes a lot of sense, because even in the 80s, I feel like a lot of the movies I watched, I just watched on television as they were syndicated, um, or we would record it on VHS, and then I'd re-watch it. It wasn't till the 90s that I really remember renting movies or even going to the library, there was just these kind of movies sitting there waiting to fill this new market of the rental industry. Yeah, so let's get into this film. Uh, it opens kind of a duality, if you will. We see uh, this FBI agent uh, played by Keanu Reeves, and there's a little action, uh, a little action to show you that he's a young rookie that uh, he knows what he's doing, and that he's a crack shot when he's doing like the. Uh the, uh, the yeah. target practice and the, the cardboard people shape things. I'm sure there's a technical name for those. But, like, they pop up and Special Agent Johnny Utah or Trainee Johnny Utah hits the target every single time. That's important. We'll come back to this later. Exactly. And we also see another figure uh, surfing in the California sun. We don't really see uh, the face of this character, but you know that these are the two characters that we're being introduced to. I believe it's Swayze's name coming from the left of the screen and Keanu Reeves coming into the middle. And then as they touch, they sort of like the colors blend and then their names come out opposite colors on the end. And I think it's sort of 
setting for the way that these two characters and their roles throughout the movie. It's definitely a this guy versus that guy kind of movie. You know, they're on the same side at times, but their their relationship, and you could say it's these two stars sort of head-to-head. You can make the argument that, you know, possibly due to uh, Patrick Swayze dying so young, Keanu Reeves arguably is the bigger uh, Hollywood star as it turned out, you know, the Matrix trilogy and everything else he's done. But uh, Patrick Swayze at, at this time is probably the bigger star, having had, you know, such success with Dirty Dancing, Ghost, and uh, let's not forget, Ghost was nominated for Best Picture. So, you know, he is really riding high. No, and I think I've said this when we did the last uh, Patrick Swayze movie, but I think starting in 83, and these are the good movies. There's a bunch of bad ones. Outsiders, Youngblood, which is a hockey movie, which is good if you've never seen it. Dirty Dancing, Roadhouse, Ghost, Point Break. And then it's sort of, so there's a few in there. I think Tu Wong Fu was successful in some circles. Right. I actually never saw it. But like... There's six movies that all did great at the box office, and even if you don't like the artistic nature of Roadhouse, it's a fun movie. I'm going to ask you, Al, can you please correct him? He said there was a movie, uh, Tu Wong Fu. Can you please uh, say the whole thing? All I'm doing is correcting you on movie titles. It's Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Is that right? I think you're forgetting a comma in there, but very good, Al. I am so proud that I just knew you'd know all of that. I paused indicating the comma you're the one who started the whole word saying every colon so uh, i thought you started that we'll check the tape yes we will <laughs> but uh we meet another character it's john c mcginley always a delight to see on film he plays a lot of different kind of guys but here he's your curmudgeon fbi chief he is always mad. He's got to stick up his ass. And then he's uh, he's a little mad about uh, this young Johnny Utah. And he's got a great line to describe this, this young whippersnapper. Can I give you the whole line? Oh, yes. Oh, please. my God. For the guy start, he goes, you know nothing. In fact, you know less than nothing. If you knew that, you'd know nothing. But then you'd be something. But you don't. You're real blue flame special, aren't you, son? You're young, dumb, and full of cum. <laughs> And then he goes, what I don't know is you got a sign here in Los Angeles. Guess we must have ourselves an asshole shortage. (laughs) You nailed that, Adam. And I mean, young, dumb, and full of cum definitely made me laugh out loud. That's a great descriptor of, I guess, someone younger than you. Also, he's going on this whole rant about how he doesn't believe in junk food and everyone needs to exercise and be really fit and there's no smoking allowed in his office. And then Johnny Utah grabs a donut. I'm like, well, wait a second. If he's all about no sugar and no caffeine and no you know substances of any kind, why does he allow there to be jelly donuts in his office? I was wondering as watching this because the stereotype and certainly became like a running joke in a lot of movies, particularly in the 90s, of the cop chief or boss who's a real asshole and always yelling and cursing and putting down their cops, but then at the same time constantly letting them do really stupid things. Yeah. But it's become a running joke, but like, was John C. McGinley like the beginning of this stereotype? He's just screaming and yelling, yet at every point, every bad like cop idea that Johnny Utah has, he's like, oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, and then later we'll say, I don't know how I got talked into this. Like, but you did. Like, you were convinced. You signed off on it. I can't imagine that this was the first instance of that trope, but John C. McGinley totally nails it. Um, Now, in Southern California, where this film takes place, there are a string of robberies, bank robberies. And we do get a glimpse of this robbery. And it's this group of characters. They dress as four former presidents of the United States, uh, Ron Reagan, LBJ, you got uh, Nixon, and you got Kennedy. Carter. 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 Yes, it is right. The four most recent ex-presidents when this movie was made, except for Gerald Ford. Uh, Yes, Uh, let's say the four most recent elected presidents. Sure. Um, And one thing about these uh, robbers is that they're very smart. They don't do the whole thing. They don't try to get into the vault. They don't waste time. They just go for the tellers. Uh, They basically get a couple thousand dollars and then they're out of there. So the police can never get there in time and they haven't been caught yet. Pretty soon after McGinley, like they introduce Gary Busey, who is the grizzled veteran police guy because there's always got to be a grizzled veteran to match up with the rookie right um they introduce him quickly he's kind of like a wise ass hard ass but 
they quickly get thrown on the case. And there's a scene which it's not good, but uh, Ken, who's trying to get Busey to talk to him, and Busey's like, oh, kid, you know nothing, blah, 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 blah. And he gets them all riled up about something. And he's like, I want you to feel something. What's your take? And Busey all of a sudden comes out of nowhere and he's like, the bank robbers are surfers. You're right. It's weird how like there's this big fight between Utah and uh, Pappas. That's the name of Gary Busey's character. And it's like Utah needs to like drag this theory out of Pappas that, you know, the robbers are surfers. They, they build that up into this whole big Thing when Pappas should just tell his partner his theory about the robbers. Like, it shouldn't be, like, a whole thing. But you're right. It's like It becomes, like, this, this shouting match. It almost looks like it's, like, by the Griffith Observatory where you have, like, that, that shot that's in every movie of, like, downtown L.A. I mean, it's a cool-looking shot, but did they need to have this scene? Or could yeah. they just be in the office and say, so here's my theory about the robbers. I think they're surfers. Look at the tan line. Right. Why are they at Lover's Lane? It's basically yeah. a makeout scene. And the thing is, you're exactly right. His reveal is not something outlandish. Like, you're never going to believe this. They're Soviet agents who brainwashed Americans. No, he's like, they're surfers. Uh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, and you know his theory that these are surfers is strengthened by a lab review that uh, says that some kind of substance that came back from one of the robberies they found a residue of something called sex wax, which mm-hmm. is basically uh, a wax that you rub on your surfboard. I don't think I saw this in the theater. In fact, I'm almost positive I didn't. But I saw this definitely as a you know a young kid, uh, maybe early teens or something. And I thought this was a very powerful piece of product placement because I didn't know anything about surfing. I grew up in uh, the northern suburbs of New York City. I just assumed that sex wax was the product that you use to rub on surfboards. Is it not? I mean, it is, but I just assumed that this was like the product. Like there's scotch tape and then there's no name brands. Um, we're kind of getting into his introduction and meeting to Tyler. I do want to make a comment on uh, probably one of the more scumbaggy things someone does in a movie and how he picks up Tyler. He thinks she's going to be his in into surfing, that of all the people to teach him how to surfing, she's the only one that is the magical surf teacher so he could infiltrate the surf bank robbers. Right. So they do some quick searches in their magical, you know, cop laboratory and they find out that Tyler's parents died in a car accident. Yeah. So, because he's an FBI agent undercover, he goes in to like convince Tyler and then tells her, and now this is if all you knew of Keanu was um, Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. And I know he was in some other movies, and I'm sure even if I looked at them, I'd be like, oh yeah, I like that movie. I like them. Keanu was not a great actor early on. And the the delivery of this speech, and maybe it's because he's playing undercover, and in real life he's a bad actor. I mean, in the movie he's a bad actor playing an undercover agent, so he's bad at delivering it. But I have a feeling he's just really bad. He gives Tyler this whole speech. His parents died. I forget exactly how. And basically guilt trips her into giving him surf lessons because like her, his parents equally died. And even though they wanted him to go to law school and he went to law school, when they died, he realized he was living someone else's life. You're right. I mean, it is a super scumbaggy move. That's like the worst thing that he could use to like get in with this woman. Also, why does he need that? Also, why would anyone just meet someone and ask for surfing lessons and then go in an impassioned speech about how your parents died when it's literally your first conversation with this person? Like, to me, doesn't that scream, this guy's an undercover agent? Like, who talks like that? Who brings up their dead parents in their first conversation with anyone? In any situation. I also love how she tells him that he's too old to learn how to surf. And he's clearly the rookie. So he's like 24, 25. Yeah, yeah. But also to your point, Adam, about him being undercover and being bad at undercover. From every other movie and TV show I've ever seen where someone goes undercover, they get a new identity. They get a new name. They develop a backstory. This guy is Johnny Utah. The same name. 
And he's instantly recognized when he meets Bodie and all the other surfers because he played college football. And they're like, oh, I remember seeing you on the Rose Bowl and you had a great career in college football, but then you blew out your knee. So if this guy's that recognizable and he played in one of the biggest college football games that's like nationally televised, you would think that Chief John C. McGinley might say, uh, yeah, Johnny Utah, you can't go undercover. Everyone knows who you are. To a group of probably young people. Maybe you can go undercover in a nursing home. But sure. as like in the, you know, an orderly. But. Right, to, to bust a, a string of robberies at an old folks home? Yeah, exactly. But he does. He goes undercover. And initially, uh, Tyler's giving him some lessons. And there's a montage. He's getting a little better. And he's going out one day and he learns a, a rule, I guess, which is uh, don't get in the way of someone else's wave. And he gets in the way of someone else. And uh, this guy punches him in the face and cuts the cord off of his uh, surfboard. There's like surfer gangs. Like, oh, yeah. There's some hoodlum surfing. Yeah, these are basically neo-Nazis. Did you recognize who one of the Nazis was? Of of course, yeah. he doesn't. Of course, it's Anthony Kiedis. That's not news, right? We all knew Anthony Kiedis was in this. Right? Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, it's Anthony Kiedis looking like peak Anthony Kiedis with the, like, Anthony Kiedis dreads. Anthony Kiedis has a mohawk, but then he's got sideburns, like, shaved along the sides, but those sideburns are then braided into two long braids. Yeah, it's awesome. really a fantastic haircut. And just random... Red Hot Chili Peppers fact, last week we talked about Back to the Future Part 3, which has Flea in it. So two weeks in a row, actually I guess three weeks in a row because he's also in Back to the Future Part 2, but that's three weeks in a row we've talked about movies with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers in them. Uh, when he is surfing uh, with Tyler, there is a scene where they glimpse in the sun a beautiful long-haired blonde man surfing and he gets one of those, whoa, who is that? And she's like, that's Bodhi. He's a real searcher. I mean, his name is Bodhi. So you get the idea that he's kind of like a spiritual guy and he's got a code. Well, they say uh, that, right? That Bodhi is short for, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Oh, yeah, I looked it up. I think it's something that like in Buddhism, you give up enlightenment to help others. It's something like that. I'm sure I'm messing that up. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the long word that Bodhi is short for. You know, the, in uh, Almost Famous, they use the word, I'm a golden god. Like, that's the way I look at Patrick Swayze, like, in that scene. He's a majestic specimen in this movie. I mean, that right? it's so sexy. <laughs> it's true. Um, Utah winds up running to the gang on the beach, and they all attack him. And Utah's holding his own for a while until Bodhi intervenes. He's like, relax, he's with me. Bodie and Utah basically kick their asses and Utah goes back and he goes to his uh, boss, John C. McGinley, and he's like, I found them. I found the gang of surfer hoodlums. And like using the evidence they had that they're probably surfers, they piece it together and look at these pieces of shit. They all have records. Right. So Bodie and Utah are becoming friends and Bodie invites Johnny Utah to his party. And I always feel like in life, I never know how to dress for special occasions or certain occasions or parties or whatever. But Johnny Utah shows up to Bodie's party in a long sleeve collared shirt. And instantly I'm like, that's wrong. That is wrong. These are like surf dudes that never wear much clothes at all. And everyone else in the party is wearing like t-shirts and like ripped tank tops and stuff. And he's in a fucking button-down collared shirt. I think I know why he's wearing that. Because they are scheduled the raid on the potential uh, bank robber Just... gang. And then he has to go to this party. Busey even says, like, get a good night's sleep. You got an early morning tomorrow. Is it possible he wears what he needs to wear to the raid, to the party? Either way, he shows up to the surf party, <laughs> right? And then they, they party out, he hangs out with the girl, and then they go night surfing. The night surfing scene is amazing. It is really impressive. And I was just watching it thinking, how the hell did they shoot this? How did they light this? I mean, it's dark, but you can see everything that happens. And I was just really, really impressed by the entire scene, as was Johnny Utah, because what does he say? It's Keanu Reeves, so what does he say? Whoa. It's the perfect Keanu Reeves woe. And also in the scene, Bodhi talks about 
the 50-year storm, which is like this perfect storm where you get the biggest waves in the world that comes twice a century to Australia. And it's real, and he's going. This is also important for later. I'll just say, from this point on, this movie basically is awesome. (laughs) That's your hot take? That's my hot take. Um, Speaking of hot takes, that's not really a good segue, but you know what else happens at this scene? Tyler and Johnny Utah... It is heavily implied that they have sex on the beach, and I am not talking about the cocktail. And I didn't see any blanket involved, so there's just sand going to go in all the wrong places. Or all the right places, depending on your point of view. (laughs) I don't see that point of view. (laughs) I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying, you know, to each their own. Sand fetish? Oh, God. But no, they definitely have sex... Because they wake up in the morning, and it's evident that they're not wearing clothes. Good for Johnny Utah and Lori Petty. And then Johnny Utah realizes that he's late to his own raid. And, you know, Lori Petty at this time, she had, in this year or two, she really has her moment. Uh, We saw her in A League of Their Own, and she's one of the principal stars of that film. And this film, she's the main female character. And then, the, I think it's the next summer, she's going to wind up starring in a big kind of summer film. And it was based on kind of a, an underground uh, the comic uh, called Tank Girl. And it was that summer's huge, notorious flop. And I always feel bad when, like, you know, some actor has, like, one big flop and, like, just tanks their career. Uh, Tank Girl. Mm. But uh, Laurie Petty, she was pretty big for a while. She's beautiful. She's She's good in this movie. I mean, I think... They don't give her a ton to do. Um, You know, it's really more about the relationship between Utah and Bodhi. You know, like the, the love story is there. I just made air quotes when I said love story. It's not really that important an element of the movie. But after this night with Tyler, he goes to this raid because he thinks that Anthony Kiedis's gang is the bank robbers. Neo-Nazi surfer gang. Right. It makes sense. But I could not, for the life of me, understand why Utah would be at this raid. And Pappas, he does say, well, you're only here as a last resort. We don't want to blow your cover. Well, then he shouldn't be there at all. Or put on a ski mask. It's so easy. No, you have the FBI. You have many agents. We see their office. It's a big office filled with many agents. If you need local law enforcement to back you up, great. Johnny Utah should not be there. I I disagree with that. I mean, he has information they might not know on site. He could point out people. But you're absolutely right that there's no reason he should be in basically a T-shirt running around. On a few occasions, Johnny, Utah, and Pappas, like, it's just them. Like, even there's a key scene later on in the movie where they think something's going to happen and something happens. They're the only two people there. Like, call someone else. Like, why does John C. McKinley keep letting them do things when it's evident they don't know how to follow proper police procedure? But nitpicking. Get back to the action. No, I mean, it's weird that he's there. And, of course, the reason that Johnny, Utah, is in the scene is because... He's Keanu Reeves, and he's one of the stars of the movie, and we want to see him in this raid, and just seeing Gary Busey shoot at Anthony Kiedis is less interesting. It's more fun when you see Keanu Reeves get into a fight with one of the guys, and he's holding his face, like, right up to the lawnmower blade. That's a great scene. A lot of tension. A lot really get really anxious watching that. The next-door neighbor turns on the lawnmower, so, of course, now the radio systems don't work. The way Bigelow really films all of these little things... Like, the quarters of the house are really small, yes. the doorways are small, the lawnmower is really loud, no one could communicate, and there's chaos. It's a well-filmed action sequence. And we find out at the conclusion of this raid that these were the wrong guys. <laughs> and, of course, the three of us knew what the conclusion of this was, that uh, as Utah realizes shortly after this, that it's Bodie and his gang. But my girlfriend watching this, she didn't realize that. She thought, like, oh, you know, it's going to be yeah. these neo-Nazis. And she thought that Johnny was going to need the help of Bodie and, like, he was going to help him take down these robber surfers. So it is well done that you don't know it's Bodie. Because I was watching the sea if we could tell and they don't give away at all that Bodie and his gang are, are the robbers in the beginning there's this great uh, Keanu scene where it's after the raid goes bad and they're sitting in the police office and Keanu's just going fuck fuck 
he got it completely wrong. He's mad at himself and he's he's beating himself up and he starts to suspect that it's Bodhi and his crew that are the ex-presidents because in like the surveillance footage of the ex-presidents doing a robbery, one of the guys like moons the security camera. And then while he's hanging out on the beach, one of Bodhi's friends, I forget the character's name, forgive me, but he moons someone. And so that kind of like helps him piece it together. And then he's explaining to Papas that he followed Bodhi around. And what did Bodhi do? He went to Tower Records to buy CDs. And I'm like, ooh, I'm going to make a note of that for my snarky little thing to say on my Test of Time podcast because, you know, Tower Records to buy CDs. But then where did he go after that? He went to Patrick's Roadhouse for lunch. And I'm like, come on. Sometimes, you know, characters will make references to an actor's other movie within a different movie. But Patrick's Roadhouse, about the character played by Patrick Swayze, the star of the movie Roadhouse. I'm like, that's really, really terrible. But then I looked it up, and Patrick's Roadhouse is an actual real place that geographically makes sense for this character to have actually gone to. (laughs) That's amazing. You know, uh, the next scene, this is the scene where uh, Utah and Pappas, they're staking out uh, the banks and they're waiting to try to catch these presidents uh, robbing. And ultimately, they do. Utah's like, FBI, freeze. The chase scene after this bank robbery is amazing. It's so good. The camera work, the quick cuts, it's phenomenal. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And at one point... The lead bank robber, who we assume is Bodie, but in the movie you only see is a guy wearing a Ronald Reagan mask. And apparently it was not really Patrick Swayze. It was his stunt double because, one, I think he was doing uh, press for Ghost. And also, why would you make Patrick Swayze do all this stuff? Like, have a, you know, a stunt double do it? But at one point, this guy in the Reagan mask throws a dog at Utah. And then Johnny Utah kicks the dog and there's a yelp i believe yes and i mean if you think about keanu reeves in john wick who loved his dog more than anything here he is i don't know 20 something years before drop kicking a dog i mean he kind of had to but still like not cool i'm with you and now we watch action scenes and like it's always can we up the ante this scene it's not really like crazy things happen But it's the way it's filmed, I think, is really done well to make it a good scene. And it's not that the actual events of the action scene are so insane or so crazy or unrealistic. This is very Paul Greengrass-like, if you've ever seen any of his films. He he directed the number two and number three Born Supremacy, uh, Born Ultimatum films. This is a lot of his uh, quick shot style. The scene basically ends in, you call that thing what? It's the LA Causeway, the LA River or something. That's what you call that. Terminator Uh, 2. Yeah, it's it's that alleyway area that people have seen. And uh, Ronald Reagan, he's climbed up the fence, and Utah, uh, he's jumped down, uh, but he's hurt his knee, uh, presumably re hurt the the knee he hurt in college. And he's got Reagan dead to sight. And just like you you did make the reference earlier that uh, he's a crack shot from the opening scene. If Utah wants to, he can end this right now. He can take out uh, Reagan. And he just stares at him. And Reagan looks back at him. And you could see Patrick Swayze's eyes through the mask. And what a good actor. I mean, just his eyes you could see. And there's just a look between the two of them. And Utah is frustrated. He decides not to basically execute him. And he just fires his entire magazine into the air in frustration. It's like the screaming is physical and internal pain over having to be put in the situation where he basically just had to shoot his little guru, his surf guru. Right. And the thing is, he can't shoot his friend. It's not officially confirmed, but he very strongly believes that this guy in the Reagan mask is Bodhi and he won't do it. And then if it wasn't crystal clear enough for you the audience member watching this movie. Then in the next scene, Papas is yelling at Utah and he says, you don't miss your shots. I know that you never miss a shot. So you're telling me that you miss this guy? If you ask me, you're getting too close. Which is another trope of a movie where someone goes undercover to nab someone, but then he gets close to the person he's trying to nab. You've seen that in a million movies. And yeah, that's the problem, is that Utah is getting too close. And then Papas then says, go home, sleep it off, and if I hear anything, I'll beep you, which I made a note of that because test of time. 
Then we're back at Lori Petty's place, and basically he's all beat up, and he's like, oh, I got hit by a car, hit and run. They have a fight um, because Lori Petty finds his FBI badge and then realizes that he's an asshole because said that his parents died when they didn't. Right. She books it, but his knee hurts. He can't chase her. All that happens really, really fast. Like, a lot plot-wise happens. Yeah. And then we see... Bodie and his friends without the masks and they're talking about the robbery and how they almost got busted by Johnny Utah so now we know for sure it is these guys and they're like all right well now we know that the FBI is on to us we leave now and Bodie's like no I've got a better idea and then boom all of a sudden Bodie's knocking on the door and he's like yo Utah we got to go on a trip and we're off skydiving but, like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Utah go with him? Again, he doesn't 100% know that it was Bodie in the Reagan mask, but he's pretty the damn rush. sure. He's going for the rush. Right, but it just doesn't make sense why. Because uh, everyone seems to know that they each know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, it is very weird. However, I think from uh, Bodie's point of view, he takes uh, Johnny up in the airplane so that they can uh, distract him, so that they can kidnap uh, Tyler and that, you know, make the video and everything. But from Utah's point of view, I was thinking this is crazy, but I give the film credit. Right when they get in the airplane and they're thinking they're going to jump, I'm thinking, well, the obvious thing is they're just going to fuck with his parachute. Utah's basically like, so who packed my parachute? And everyone's like, we're not fucking with your parachute. Take, like, anyone you want. No, it's a good scene. They all trade bags, so you don't know whose bag was whose in the beginning. But Utah even comes out and says it. I think he goes, Bodie, the game's over. I'm a fucking FBI agent. Like, he flat out just, like, says that at one point, I think. No, he says it. I am an FBI agent. Agent! (laughs) That's how he says it. Yeah, but he says that after they go skydiving and after Bodhi shows him the videotape of Tyler being kidnapped. I did just want to say one thing about the skydiving scene because, James, you and I have gone skydiving in real life on my bachelor party in 2007. Jesus, that was a long time ago. You and I went with uh, another friend of ours, Ben, who is going to come on and do Revenge of the Nerds with us Someday, he was supposed to do it a couple years ago. We'll get Ben on eventually. But the crazy thing about skydiving is you're jumping out of like a plane that you don't have to jump out of. It's not like the plane's crashing and you jump because you have to to save your life. And they say that in this movie. I think Bodhi says like, you're about to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And I remember thinking that when we went skydiving. And I don't remember if I thought that then because of this movie or not. But that's the craziest shit about skydiving. Absolutely, Al. I'll tell you, by far, for folks that have not skydived, the least scary part, I'd say, is once the parachute's open. That part's you know, just uh, sightseeing at that point. Well, that's fun. Yeah, that that's fun. The single scariest part, in my opinion, it was the part where you're sitting, your butt is in the airplane, and your feet are hanging out outside an airplane because that is the point of like my life is 99.9999% safe right now why am I doing this there's no good reason to do this Al Ben I'll see you guys on the bottom you guys just left I'm the no but as you're thinking about this you're already pushed out of the airplane I will disagree I think the scariest part of skydiving is when you're sitting right next to the door and then you see your friend go out the door (laughs) that to me was really scary i forget the exact order i think it went ben you and then me is that right um i thought i was last but i know i was not first so i definitely remember uh, i think we saw ben go first yeah like watching ben go out of the plane really freaked me the fuck out. Right. And then I was like, nope, 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 nope. Change my mind, change my mind. And of course I got a guy strapped to my back because it's tandem and he's like ignoring me and he hears that a million times every day and he just jumps anyway. But like, I mean, that was terrifying. Adam, I wish you had been at my bachelor party. I wish we had been friends then. If you were there, would you have gone? No. (laughs) There's zero, zero point zero, zero, zero percent chance that I would ever voluntarily choose to jump out of a plane zero interest and i i believe in adrenaline but yeah no i don't even (laughs) want to surf i mean the idea of surfing sounds like fun but the idea of drowning it's too 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 close 
you can't beat the real thing, but the best part about skydiving is that 30 to 45 second free fall when it's just you, yeah, gravity, great. and <laughs> and and I know you did this for a fact. I know you you have to try to fly. You have to try. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you can't. And actually, the Earth is not plummeting towards you. It's it's very slow when you're looking at it, and you know you have goggles on, so wind is not in your eyes. It's it's kind of still. I thought that was an incredibly zen moment in my life. And that 30 to 45 seconds, that's the great part about skydiving. And I think Keanu Reeves did a fine job portraying, at least, his awe. And, like, he never felt anything like this emotion that he's feeling. And I thought that Catherine Bigelow, or whoever the cinematographer uh, was, did a great job portraying the essence of skydiving. While can't beat the real thing, good job. The visuals are great. The essence is great. But... Keanu Reeves in the beginning of this movie is kind of defined as he's this ex-football player who then busted out his knee, went to law school, became an FBI agent. He's all serious and catch the bad guys. He even says, he's like, I don't want to learn how to surf. I'm an FBI agent. He never surfed before. Then he falls in love with surfing. He's also never skydived before. So all of these things, and part of, I think, for Bodhi is introducing this world to Utah because he also even says he's like he sees something in Utah he sees this desire for this adrenaline junkie and then they jump out of the plane and then they all hold hands (laughs) yeah like as they're holding hands I mean it's sort of like what you're saying James you can try to fly when you're skydiving but you're not flying you're falling and in this movie they're kind of like oh come over here and they sort of like shoot themselves and propel themselves this way and they like go a little faster and go a little slower and you know they catch up to each other even though they jumped at different times like you can't really do that yes you can you've never seen acrobatic you could go on youtube right now and see all that stuff but aren't those like professionals that have like wings under their arms no 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 they're not professionals i mean there are professionals that do this but they do this stuff all the time like jumping over the olympic city and then there'll be a ring of the olympics the divers are wearing the olympic cars they do this stuff all the time you absolutely can control we couldn't we were tandem you know we're just a brick falling down okay all right fair enough Fair enough. That was convincing, and you're a doctor, so I believe you, (laughs) but you may have just made that up. (laughs) No, no, it's definitely real. Um, There's no CGI in this film, or the the remake in 2015, but uh, right after they land, Bodhi's like, I got something, it's gonna sting, and he shows him a VCR recording of some guy who's kidnapped Tyler, and essentially, the gang is telling uh, Utah, you have to come with us on one last robbery. And Utah's like, call that guy and tell him to release her. And he's like, I can't. Where they're going, they don't have phones. I have to meet him. Of course, you know, the whole thing of cell phones kind of renders this plot point moot. The chemistry between the two leads is great. And we probably haven't touched upon enough how good it is, because that's kind of what keeps this movie going. After he shows him the video, and Utah basically, like, grabs Swayze and holding Swayze up, and he's choking up. He's like... I know it hurts, Utah. I know it hurts, Johnny. At this point in the movie, Patrick Swayze is the bad guy. There is no question about it. But he still has this charm, this like this slither to his voice that just draws you in. Johnny Utah, he knows he's a bank robber. He has killed people. He's kidnapped his girlfriend, threatening to kill her if he doesn't help her. And still, Johnny Utah, what's he say? He's like, well, then we're wasting time. You know, I'd make the argument that uh, he actually hasn't killed anyone yet. And at this point, he's not an irredeemable bad guy yet until the next scene. And maybe the whole kidnapping Tyler could have just been, yeah, it was just a, a little ruse or something. And he never really hurt her. He released her a second after that. But uh, the robbers, they all go. They put on their masks. Uh, Utah doesn't get a mask. The five of them go into the bank. And while they're doing a robbery, two things change. One is that for some unexplained reason, Bodhi decides to break his own rule. And he decides to waste more time by going into the vault. They stick up the manager and the manager's like, do whatever they say, Terry, to some poor bank teller. Like, yeah, you do it, man. But uh, the second thing that changes is that in the crowd, as opposed to just being civilians who are all, you know, waiting to be released, there's an undercover cop. 
And the cop like motions to the uh, security guard and is like, hey man, let's take these guys. And the security guard is like, come on, man, please don't. Uh, let's not do this. Just let him rob. It's got insurance. Who cares? But it goes wrong. The cop uh, says, freeze. The cop is killed. The security guard is killed. One of the bank robbers is killed and another one is shot. And so uh, three of them escape along with Utah. No, they don't take Utah. Yeah, Utah. Oh, I'm sorry, they don't take Utah. They, they, uh, they crack him they, in the face with a pistol, whip him, and then he's left on the ground. Once Swayze has murdered civilians, including an armed security guard, he may not know that the other guy's a cop. But once he's killed an armed security guard, why doesn't he just kill uh, Utah? Or is it just kind of one of these, like, we've surfed and skydived together, we are now brothers? Is it one of those things? Utah spared his life. He spared... I mean, listen, at this point, wouldn't you have just killed Utah like three scenes ago instead of taking you skydiving with him if you didn't have like an affinity for this guy? I think what it really is, is that these two characters have stopped listening to their brains and they are now not following logic. If Bodhi was being logical, he would have done the simple robbery like he always does, get in, get out. It doesn't matter if there's an undercover cop there because by the time he convinces a security guard to maybe grab my gun and you grab your gun and you'll cover me, they're already out the door. It doesn't matter. But Bodhi is not thinking that way. Now he's just acting on impulse. He's acting on instinct. And that's what Utah is doing. Utah knows that when he has that shot at Reagan, he should take it. He should stop this. But he doesn't. They are both getting too close to each other. They have both been influenced by the surf and nature and this Buddhist feeling of enlightenment or whatever. And they're making really bad decisions. Both of them. No, you're right. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I love this movie, but that was way in depth for me. I'd say, if anything, it's their bromance, man. They're just keeping it going. They're like two crazy teenagers that are just getting into trouble. But they're also not even listening to their uh, co-workers. Basically, the other surfers are like, let's book town tonight, man. Like, Would that you listen to right. that guy either? That guy like, didn't seem trustworthy. Yeah, I guess not. But, but you know, if one of the FBI like would have had other ideas, and you were even saying, why don't they call uh, backup at certain points in the film? But, you know, they don't. The robbery goes awry. Uh, the FBI comes, and they decide that they're going to arrest Johnny, I guess because he's taken part in a in a robbery where, uh, where a cop was killed. So well, With good cause absolutely john c mcginley should arrest utah right right i mean you arrest him and then you know sort it out later and maybe you know there's something to to do there but papas is like i'll take him in sir papas immediately takes the handcuffs off him and he's like all right let's get these sons of bitches right and utah fills him in on the whole tyler was kidnapped thing they get to the airport there's a shootout Pappas is killed by one of Bodhi's men. One of Bodhi's other guys is shot and is really bleeding and is probably not going to make it. They take Utah with them. Again, maybe not the most logical thing to do. Maybe they could just leave him there on the tarmac. But they bring him and they jump out of this plane again. They don't give Utah a shoot. Which is the only time in the movie that actually Swayze really jumped out of a plane when Bodhi, um, he's like, adios amigos, and he just like throws his arms back and he like flying out of the plane. And then as he's going and there's where Keanu's sitting there and you could see him like, oh fuck, and he's just like deciding if he's going to do it. But the whole scene is just done really, really well. It's just adrenaline for the audience is going to. Yeah, it's a very tense scene. You're right. And Utah jumps out of the plane after these guys without a shoot and, like, you know, propels himself down to get to Bodhi. He's got a gun, but he can't, like, hold the gun on Bodhi while holding on to him while also pulling the chute. So then he has to drop the gun to pull the chute. He lands, but it's another rough landing again on his knee. And Bodhi's able to escape. He does make good on his promise that he delivers Tyler. You know, she's unharmed. But uh, he just drives away with uh, the guy who is holding her hostage and a couple of duffel bags worth of cash. And, you know, just leaves Tyler and Utah in the desert. Yeah, and uh, presumably somehow they get uh, rescued. But no water, no cell phone. He's in uh, a t-shirt. She's in lingerie. The desert gets really cold at night but either way uh the the <laughs> crux of the film is over and we come to the epilogue 
Right. Utah is tracking down Bodie at this 50-year storm in Australia. He knows that he's going to be there. Uh, he finds him there. He says like, oh, I just missed you in this place. So he's clearly been on his trail for a while, which to me meant that Johnny Utah has faced no consequences for taking place in the armed robbery, which led to the death of a police officer, which like, really? Like a little bit? Maybe he should have lost his job or something? What did he do wrong? Like, he participated in a robbery. He had to. For the, There was a civilian that was being kidnapped. There's things he did that were definitely worthy of no longer being an FBI agent. Yeah. And then he does yet another one, probably the worst one, where he gets Bodie in handcuffs after they have this big fight. And Bodie's like, come on, man. Let me go out there and ride this wave. This is my last ride. I have to do it. You know I have to do it. And at first, Utah's like, no, you've got to go down. You made mistakes and people died. And he's right. As an FBI agent, he has to bring this criminal in. He has to answer for his crimes. But then he's like, eh, nah, and he lets him go. And he knows that he's going to die, but that's not okay still. Like, the family members of that cop who died in that bank robbery, they want justice and the guy who presumably died in a wave and they'll probably never find his body, that's not justice. That's not what an FBI agent should do. But then he decides he's not an FBI agent anymore. He throws his badge in the water and walks away like, okay, cool, but what? It's a very weird ending. This is like a bromance. We didn't talk about the football scene when he tackles him real hard in the water and his friends are like, hey man, he's like, don't you know who this is? It's Johnny Utah. He's allowed to tackle me in the water. Right. There have been think pieces written about the movie's homoerotic undertones, which are definitely there. It's part of the reason why I like it. Since we are at the end of the movie, Adam, and since you are our very special guest for the sixth time, no less, do you think that Point Break stands the test of time? I do. The first, uh, whatever it is, I would say the first third of this movie is definitely uh, not great. It's it's really corny, and it's all the things about like bad Keanu movies and some late 80s, early 90s bad action movies, melodramatic that you would expect. But um, the chemistry of the main leads is great. What happens is secondary. I think it's the way it's all put together, the way it's filmed, and the way it's edited. And like I wrote this down from the party at Bodie's house. Then they go night surfing. Then they have like the 22nd beach sex scene. Then they go to the FBI raid. Then Keanu figures it out. Then they go to the the stakeout outside the bank where they, we didn't even talk about the two meatball sandwiches. Then there's the foot chase in L.A. <laughs> then there's the he doesn't shoot Bodie in the head. Then Bodie's showing up at his house to take him skydiving. Then they do the skydiving scene. Then they do another bank robbery scene. Then they go back to the airport, have another shootout where Pappas dies. Then they go back up into the plane. Then they do jumping out of a plane without a parachute. It's just like a nonstop series of really good action. And um, it's one of those things where you look up an hour and a half later and you're like, oh, this was awesome. Okay. So, so you're in it for the action, the thrill ride, and you think it stands the test of time. I'm in it for the good time. And Swayze is really awesome. I mean, there's only a handful of great Swayze movies, but this is one of them. Gotcha. All right, James, what do you think? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've seen this film... Uh, Plenty of times, but I hadn't seen it in a while. I've actually more recently seen the remake from 2015. I don't know if did either of you see that film? I haven't. I did not. I remember that it came out around the same time as The Force Awakens. And I was like, why would they release a movie now? It's just going to get crushed. Oh, yeah. Counter-programming for, you know the adolescent boys who need an alternative to uh, Star Wars. Yeah, it was a huge flop, $105 million budget. It made like, I don't know, 20 million or something. But the movie was beautiful. It had no CGI. I mean, it, it really elevated the stakes. I mean, instead of just surfing and skydiving, they did uh, snowboarding and like that helicopter snowboarding where you go to the peak of a crazy mountain, skateboarding, mountain climbing. Uh, 
There's an unbelievable wingsuit scene. Those are those uh, suits that yeah, you look like Batman sort of and you fly around. It's unbelievable. And I actually read that uh, that like three of the five people in the wingman suit uh, scene, they're dead because they're all real uh, stuntmen. And they just died in you know a year or two after these uh, scenes were filmed. It's a crazy scene. And they almost miss hitting the mountain at one point, And it's probably real. But it had a horrible plot. So, you know, when you think about it, it was was right for a remake. I mean, let's do 4D and Ultra, but you know, it really shows that this film, it's the chemistry of these actors that are really, really what what does it. I mean, I like Keanu's woeness, and uh, my girlfriend, she she knows Patrick Swayze more of uh, Dirty Dancing, and she's seen Ghost, but she actually didn't recognize that that was Patrick Swayze uh, for the first couple scenes of him because he looks really different and he's really gritty and it's just a testament to him that he could play such different characters so well. But um, another thing that uh, I found funny was that she uh, thought that it was funny seeing a non-insane Gary Busey because she was like, I only know the totally insane guy that we know now and Entourage. He actually did have some kind of motorcycle accident, I think, like in the late 90s and actually did mess up his brain or, or maybe some other uh, things messed up his brain as well. One thing that stands up, there was a Mythbusters episode about this movie and there's some stuff that might not stand up, but Keanu Catching up to uh, to Bodhi is possible, uh, theoretically, by doing all those little stunts that they can do. But finally, I'm going to say that this film is really, really similar to the first Fast and Furious film. The Fast and the Furious. Yes, that, that series, while I like it, it's completely bonkers and it's going into basically James Bond with cars. The first film is really this film, almost by the numbers, to the, the, the fake uh, gang that they think they're the robbers. They do a raid and it goes wrong and their chief is mad at them and the love interest that sleeps with them and gets him in there and he gets too close to the FBI agent. And I like that film. I like this film I think it's really well shot I think the second half of the film is stronger than the first half I feel like they should have filmed the skydiving scene earlier just with Bodie and his gang before they knew he was the uh, undercover guy it, it just Definitely. Really, it never sat right with me and still doesn't yeah, other than that scene I think the film is really fun and I think that you know, even in light of it beating it's better you know more quote-unquote beautiful and, uh, you know, more upping-the-stakes sequel. I think this film, uh, 1991, does stand the test of time. So two for two, Al. What do you think? Does this film stand the test of time? One thing that I'm going to say right off the bat that doesn't stand the test of time, I don't think your average person would know what LBJ looks like today. Like, an average movie watcher, you probably would, James, because you're smart and you know this kind of thing. I don't really know that I know what LBJ looks like, except from the fact that my daughter has a, a placemat with all the presidents on it. Nixon, Reagan, Carter, I can recognize those guys. LBJ, I don't know. If you showed me like five guys and said one of them was LBJ, I might get it right, but I might not. Um, I also just want to mention something about Gary Busey because our listener, Michelle D., who follows us on Twitter, after our Back to the Future episode, she tweeted a video of Thomas Wilson, the guy who plays Biff, who does like stand up. And he's doing like a little riff on like the questions people always ask him. And he's like, is Michael J. Fox nice? Yes. Was the manure real? No. And like one of the questions is like, who's the biggest jerk you've ever met as an actor? And he says, Gary Busey. And you can find stories online where apparently he is just insane and not a nice person. But since we were talking about him, I wanted to, to mention that. Um, I do think that there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is frustrating in terms of like the plot where it's missing these things of like, why are these characters doing the things that they're doing? Point Break refers to surfing, but we're also seeing these characters and their breaking points. I get all of that, but I think you use the perfect word, Adam. This movie is a bromance. It really is about these two characters and the way that they interact and the way that they, in a way, fall in love with each other. And that's great. I'm all for that. But it just 
doesn't do a perfect job of like showing why. Why doesn't Utah take that shot when he has it? Because they're friends and they went to a party and now Utah's dating Bodie's ex-girlfriend and is cool with it. So the motivations of the characters of Point Break really get under your skin. Well, I'm saying the lack of motivation of the characters of Point Break has gotten under my skin. But basically, yes. <laughs> you continuously have the worst opinions. Dude, this is Point Break. Hold on. You're I'm not judging finished. Point I'm not Break. finished. I'm not finished. Like it's Godfather. No, listen. In spite of all of that, I do really agree with you, Adam, that the movie is just shot so amazingly well. It's edited so well. It is put together beautifully and... I totally agree with you that the second half of this movie is just nonstop, edge of your seat, great action sequences, like, in a row. And it's really, really entertaining. And even though I have problems with some of the dialogue and some of the motivations and some of the connective tissue I really do think could be stronger, I'm going to say this movie does stand the test of time. It's just incredible to watch. It just really is just entertaining on every level. We should also mention the name Johnny Utah, which is an unbelievably great name. And I think I cracked the formula. The formula is you take a generic sounding name and you pair it with a state that ends in an uh. So you have Johnny Utah, you have Tony Montana, you have Indiana Jones. Those names sound awesome. It doesn't work for like a fancy sounding name and a state that doesn't end in an uh, because I don't want to see a movie about Archibald, Rhode Island. That doesn't sound interesting. That guy doesn't sound cool. I think it was just a thing on Johnny Unitas. It was Johnny Unitas and someone It sounded like a football name. It does. It does sound like a good football name. So can I ask one more thing? So there's a fan theory out there. Okay. Considering the fact that we did Fight Club together, I think I should share it. Okay. Um, Bodie's not real. Oh. That there's only Johnny Utah. And, and and if you go back and look, it's... At, I made this shit up. There's no fan theory, but it, it sounded believable, right? It did for a second, but then I was thinking about like <laughs> Tyler interacting with both of them at the same time. And I was like, no, that doesn't work. Oh, does it though? They jump out of the plane with one parachute? Mmm... Here's what I'll say. I bet you could make a convincing BuzzFeed article that would get a lot of clicks until someone who really knows the movie would comment and be like, here's 37 reasons why that article is bullshit. But you should totally do that and get the clicks. Go for it. I had you going for a minute. You you did. Adam, thank you for coming back on the show. I'm not even going to ask. Of course you'll come back for a seventh time, right? Of course, of course. You're welcome anytime. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are coming back to talk about Space Jam, the original movie with Michael Jordan, in honor of the new movie that's coming out with LeBron James. Stay tuned for that episode. You don't want to miss it. In the meantime, keep the conversation going with us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We love hearing from you. You can email us at the Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for having me to the pod. <laughs>